Welcome to another edition of the Populous Papers, where the elixir vitae awaits your indulgence. I was in junior high, and P.E. class had just begun. I later learned that phys ed was something JFK had implemented, something to do with his own uh, health issues. So I get to P.E., is my first period, and immediately these goons just start letting me have it. They're like, Kramer, you gotta sign up! What high school are you going to? What team are you gonna be on? Da-da-da-da-da! We weren't outside, even though it was a lovely day. Instead, we were huddled up in the front of the school auditorium, And this certainly wasn't exercise. I mean, it wasn't even a class. I thought sports were supposed to be fun. But all that happened that morning was a bunch of one-upsmanship and this whole power trip with people fighting over what positions they were going to play. So I decided to look up that word, play. And according to the Oxford English Dictionary, it's to engage in activity for enjoyment and recreation rather than for serious or practical purposes. Which seems like the exact opposite of what transpired in our P.E. class. But uh, I guess the whole thing was some sort of junior high track to whatever team we were expecting to be on later on in high school. But at the time, some of us didn't even know what high school we were going to end up at. And we certainly didn't care about some of these crappy spectator sports that these goons had probably learned about from sitting on their couches. Anyway, this power structure in charge of our phys ed, it was actually kind of Faustian. I mean, think about it. You call in some goons, and then this dark energy takes over. Side note, turns out the word test is often used as slang for testosterone, particularly in the athletic world. So it kind of gives new meaning to the idea of weeding out kids with low test scores. So I think about four or five of us just gave up and decided to sit out these sign-ups. And uh, this other kid immediately calls us out, and he's like, They're non-participating members of society. (laughs) He was right. And I believe it was at that moment we were officially switched over to what I like to think of as the Trenchcoat Mafia track. We were the freaks and geeks. Speaking of the Trenchcoat Mafia, uh, that's one story the media completely blew it on. You know, the killers in Columbine were not members of that little high school group that called themselves the Trenchcoat Mafia. You can see it in the yearbook. Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris aren't included in any of their group photos or signature pages. So if even the goth kids wouldn't have anything to do with them, no wonder they felt so isolated. And maybe that's part of what drove them crazy enough to try and pull off the largest civilian massacre in American history. Because remember, Columbine was before 9-11. And it probably would have been if those boys had been a little better at wiring bombs. The one that was supposed to go off in the cafeteria was a dud, so, you know, that entire attack could have been a lot worse. Then you got the Vegas shooter, who went to school right up the road from where this show is being recorded. Greg Pallast, the journalist, was in the same class as him. So you can read the whole story at gregpallast.com. 
But my takeaway was that the kids at that school weren't offered anything like art or AP classes. It was just a bunch of welding and agriculture, as if they were being trained for a lifetime of factory or farm work. And obviously it didn't work out too well for Stephen Paddock or his victims in Vegas, which total 851 if you count all the injuries. So I went on a little investigation as to what might have brought us to this point in time where our education system is not just a laughing stock, but a war zone. And I found myself in an old Lake Forest schoolhouse down in Heritage Hill, Orange County. It's actually a historic site. And the classroom I stood in was preserved from 1872. They even have this thing still posted on the wall called Rules for Teachers. The first few rules were things like teachers must fill the lamps and clean the chimneys each day, or a uh, teacher will bring a bucket of water and a scuttle of coal for the day's lesson each morning. But then things started to get a little weird. Teachers may take one evening per week for courting purposes, or two evenings per week if they attend church regularly. Uh, next rule was, after ten hours in school, the teachers may spend their remaining time reading the Bible or any other good books. Number six, women who marry or engage in unseemly behavior will be immediately dismissed. Uh, any teacher who smokes, uses liquor, frequents pool or public halls, or gets shaved in a barber shop will give good reason to suspect his worth, intention, integrity, and honesty. My God! Can you even imagine the absolute barbarism of seeing your own teacher getting shaved in a barber shop? Sick! And the last rule posted was, uh... The teacher who performs his duty faithfully and without fault for five years will be given an increase of 25 cents per week in his pay, if the Board of Education approves. Man, if this is how the teachers were being treated back in the day, just imagine how badly they were treating the students. So we've obviously come a long way, but we might have an even further way to go. Scottish schoolmaster James Pillins had a breakthrough when he realized that by collecting each one of the kids' little chalk slate from their lap and hanging them up together on the wall, everyone could see what he was talking about, and at the exact same time. Problem is, that was 1801, and the common classroom hasn't changed much since Pillins invented the chalkboard. I mean, we may have switched over to dry erase boards, but still, Expecting these same models of education from hundreds of years ago to equip our youth for confidence in a competitive global workforce is like expecting a computer from the 1970s to be able to stream Netflix. Uh-uh, boo-boo. So it turns out the history of forced learning in the U.S. had a lot to do with World War I, and the military's frustration when all these dudes started showing up for duty and they couldn't even spell their own names on their draft cards. A couple of states had compulsory education laws before that, but there was nothing on a national scale until the Woodrow Wilson administration. Then the National Education Administration was put together in the 20s to not only invest in prenatal health and infant welfare programs, but part of their mission statement was also to Americanize as many immigrants as possible. So from its very start, the NEA was kind of throwing a bone to both the progressive wing as well as the white nationalists. In fact, 
The KKK raised a lot of money to help get the NEA started because they didn't like the idea of so many schools being run by the Catholic Church. I went through a lot of different kinds of schools, uh, including an alternative one where we would play with the asbestos leaking out of the wall, and your only eating option was this vending machine filled with salt, sugar, and fat, you know, exactly what a growing boy needs. I wound up doing an independent study for a while, which is kind of like homeschooling, but you'd actually go in once a week and meet with an actual teacher to turn in your work. Um, so it's nice that they had options like that. And having to go in regularly probably keeps a check on incidents like Paris. Remember, uh, Paris in California, spelled with an E? That homeschool was like a torture chamber where kids were handcuffed all day with these delicious-looking pies left just out of their reach. And when the cops showed up, it turned out some of the victims were already in their early 20s and didn't even know what a police officer was. They didn't even know what the word medication meant when the cops were trying to figure out if there was any in the house. What a nightmare. But a lot of people had horrible experiences at religious schools, too. I mean, what better way for an eight-year-old boy to spend his entire summer vacation than indoors studying the Bible? Although there's a lot of good religious schools, too. Um, I taught at a Quaker school once, and I was so confused when I got there and couldn't find an office. Only a kitchen cooking real food. And every class had a wide range of ages, which I could tell worked out really well. Then I found out about the Salem Children's Village in Vermont, which was modeled after a German rabbi's philosophy of taking in those kids that the state has already deemed most at risk. You know, ones who have been in and out of tons of different foster homes and have basically just been written off. So Herr Mueller, uh, the rabbi, he would do this thing where he'd kind of attack them with love. You know, the kids who are making the worst threats and acting like they're going to go completely off the rails, he'd call their bluff. He'd come down to their level and just let them know that he cared, that they were loved, and he didn't want to see them get hurt. And it was radical because everything else these kids had been told prior to this was just, you know, threats and uh, dumping them at different facilities. So it worked because... A lot of these kids at Salem Children's Village, they end up coming back as volunteers and even staff. So it's really turned a lot of lives around. And if you're into charitable giving, uh, it's probably an organization worth looking into because schools like that really need our support. Also, the Salem Children's Village has no meat, sugar, toys or games of violence, and their entire curriculum is outdoors, which not only could help people kind of see the importance of preserving green space. But it also reminds me of the Da Vinci quote, that nature is the source of all true knowledge. She has her own logic, her own laws. She has no effect without cause, nor invention without necessity. You know, Da Vinci also said that study without zeal is like eating without appetite. By the way, I love the symbolism of bringing an apple on the first day of class. Not that anyone actually does that anymore. Uh, sometimes I'll get a Starbucks gift card right before winter break. But remember, the apple represents the gaining of knowledge. And some people even go on to the big apple, New York City, to see what's up and try and take an even bigger bite. But my favorite Da Vinci quote goes, Poor is the student who does not surpass their master. Isn't it sad to see how his vision is being disserviced? 
I mean, we don't typically treat young people as potential superiors. In fact, we don't even treat them as equals, except for a few visionaries like our friends at the open school who seem to understand this kind of paradigm shift that we need, that students are also teaching us. So that's why I lined up an incredible guest for today's show, the founder of The Open School. But before we get to the interview, uh, just in case there's someone out there that's tuning in and is considering a run for their local school board or something like that, why don't we talk more about ongoing teacher training? Like everything else in life, education's a process. And you wouldn't want a cop to go without regular target practice in the same way teachers shouldn't let our lesson plans get rusty. I mean, the military is constantly figuring out new ways of taking out our enemies. So why are we hanging educators out to dry when we also need to equip them for the front lines? And anyone who's still going around saying that stupid old saying that those who can't do teach has clearly never had to stand in front of a room full of 30 kindergartners and hold everyone's attention for an entire school day. No way. You know, a lot of teachers end up spending $3,000 a year or more on supplies. So it's no wonder way too many of them burn out their first year, just like a lot of their students don't make it to graduation. We should be providing ample resources and opportunities for expanding teaching material and keeping it as interesting and relevant as possible, especially when you have so many students these days with atypical learning styles. And I know there's some great organizations out there that offer like specialized trainings and tips on things like how to incorporate more tactile stimulation into your classes so that kinesthetic learners don't lose focus as easily. But these types of trainings can be really expensive. They're super far away. And uh, the last time I tried to attend one, I would have had to have taken a whole week off of my regular teaching job. Way too many of the best and brightest are encouraged to go into medicine or law or big business because we all know teachers don't make huge salaries. And if you remember Beavis and Butthead, I think part of that show's brilliance was showing the kinds of teachers we're often stuck with in a setup like this. Remember, they only really had those two teachers, the completely clueless and ineffective hippie, Mr. Van Driesen, and then the hardcore disciplinarian sadist, Mr. Buzzcut. And I don't think they learned a whole lot from either one of those guys. Turns out teachers have some of the highest divorce rates, too. High-stress jobs kill marriages. And according to the documentary American Teacher, 31% of teachers in the U.S. work second jobs outside of the classroom. But if you count those who work second jobs as coaches, tutors, advisors, then that number jumps to 62%, which might play a part in our high turnover rate. It's the exact opposite in a country like Korea, where top teachers earn more than the major league baseball players. And baseball is a really big deal in Korea. Them, along with Finland and Singapore, are currently considered to be the top three performing nations in terms of academia. And all three invest heavily into selective teacher recruitment. That is, they make it really hard to get into a teacher training program. And then once you're in, it's fully subsidized. It would be unheard of for a teacher to pay for their own training, let alone their own supplies, especially during those early years when you're not getting, um, you know, high paying jobs yet. And there's also a prestige that comes with being a teacher in those cultures. In Finland, it is the most admired job in the polls, even above law and medicine. 
We got 8 million Americans who have gone into default on their student debt already. And we're basically just leaving them hanging, along with teachers, when we don't invest in education like we do with defense, even though both are cases of national security. In fact, building more schools and fewer bombs would actually be the fiscally conservative thing to do. Think about it. Remember that mother of all bombs that we blew $750 million on just to drop somewhere in the middle of Afghanistan? How was that an investment? Even if you love explosions and carnage, what then? That $750 million's never coming back. Whereas if you build more schools, you're equipping students for better paying jobs, putting them in a higher tax bracket, therefore generating more money for the government. It's good business. Horace Mann pointed out way back in the 1800s that the more literacy rates increased, so did the standard of living from one generation to the next. But this is why anyone who claims that the government is supposed to run like a business needs to take a long, hard look at what kind of business spends more than half its budget on security. And if you count prisons, then it gets even more absurd. You know, to house just one inmate for a year in California costs more of your taxes than it does to put them through an entire year of Harvard. And when I speak of investing in education, I do mean the actual classrooms. There are community colleges in L.A. County that pay six-figure-a-year salaries to certain administrators and coaches, but I'm not sure how many of them ever even have to step foot inside of a classroom. According to Dr. Dieter Lenzen, the vice chancellor of Hamburg University, the German vision is that free access to a university education is considered a social duty. Denmark, Norway, and Sweden not only provide free education to their citizens, but a universal grant for supplies and living expenses. Uh, last I checked, it was 300 euros a month for up to six years. This means that your time in college, all the way up to the graduate level, can be a time of liberation, deep thinking, and actual life experiences. Very different from the blur of stress and starvation that a lot of us remember as college. See... They're using college to build a robust middle class, while in the States, college is becoming just another wedge between the haves and the have-nots. Even if you don't have kids, we all benefit when everyone has access to a high-quality education. Did you know that Thomas Jefferson was more proud of creating the first public school in America than he was of being a U.S. president? It says it right there on his headstone author of the Declaration of Independence, and father of the University of Virginia, yet nothing about being POTUS. TJ didn't even want the University of Virginia to have a president. He was so opposed to the idea of centralized power. And Wikipedia has his letter to Jason Priestley, where he outlines the creation of, quote, a university on a plan so broad and liberal and modern as to be worth patronizing with the public support. And, be a temptation to the youth of other states to come and drink of the cup of knowledge and fraternize with us. I don't know how seriously you can take Wikipedia, though, because it goes on to say that Jefferson was the first and only president to found an institution of higher learning, which can't be true because, duh, they forgot about Trump University. It seems like every school in L.A. has a cop car parked in front of it, which at first I thought was meant to deter school shootings. 
But the more I've learned about the school-to-prison pipeline, the more I think that they're there for the kids. This one time I was setting up for an enrichment class somewhere down in Rolling Hills Estates, and there were these emergency procedures that kind of caught my eye. So I started flipping through them, and I went right to this page on how to deal with a riot. But it was actually split in half. And one side were instructions on how to deal for an outside riot, like, uh, I guess, a zombie apocalypse of some kind. But on the other side was what to do if the children riot. And these are like first graders we're talking about, by the way. Um, but it reminded me so much of uh, the Village of the Damned or Children of the Corn. This sort of collective fear of children, as if they're tuned into something that we're not privy to. And do you remember the very first Child's Play movie? It's 45 minutes into the film before it even reveals what's going on with the Chucky doll. The entire time leading up to that point, it's tricking us into thinking that there's something wrong with the kid playing on those fears. We're like, he did it! The kid is evil! And if you start to pay closer attention to these films, I think you're going to see that they're trying to get us to confront this preposterous way that we treat young people. So another way to help make amends with the youth, let's give them a few tips on how to be less gouged in life. Especially with cars and taxes. Teach them how to do their own calculations and returns instead of paying an arm and a leg at H&R Block or the mechanic just to switch out some tires and batteries. We gotta give this next generation a fighting chance against these unnecessary and predatory industries. And the next thing you know, these kids will be installing their own generators, UV panels, they're going to be making fuel from scratch, setting up vertical farming, aquaponics. Hey, could be fun. And if we assign homework, can it be stuff that they can do with their families? Like, hey, if the TV is going to be on, let's watch out for some of the ways in which advertisers are taking advantage of us. Or give them a couple of interview questions for the next time they visit their grandparents. I remember schools used to incentivize us for showing up to civic events if we wrote a paper on it. So it might be a good idea to encourage more community involvement like that. Because remember when Fox News did their hit piece on California, claiming it's actually one of the worst places to live? It turns out their metric was actually community engagement. So any kind of school program that promotes more hands-on civic experiences seems like a step in the right direction. There's also a 20-year field study that was commissioned by Brigham Young, and it shows an increase in levels of self-control, empathy, and political participation later on from those who went through such programs during their formative years. Of course, class size is still a major problem. The patron saint of children himself, Fred Rogers, made the case not only for smaller class sizes, but also smaller assemblies when he testified to Congress back in 1969. He used to perform puppet shows for schools and would always stick around for a Q&A and obviously preferred small groups. That way everyone had a chance to ask questions and share ideas. One of the kids even wrote a song that Rogers recited near the end of his testimony. You should check it out. It's on YouTube. And one last thing to think about. Mandatory civil service. Not like bringing back the draft but maybe something halfway between a semester abroad and a work-study program. Basically, instead of doing the traditional senior year of high school, you could have the option of doing, like, an apprenticeship in a field of your choice. Because I noticed, 
like my first year of college, so many people dropped out. The parking lot was so full at the beginning of fall semester, you'd have to park at the mall down the street and take a shuttle. But then by the time October rolls around, there's nobody. The campus had become like a ghost town. So maybe let them have more of a transition period after high school with some real world experience before they have to commit to several years of expensive tuition. And if it's done through the military, it should qualify you for at least partial VA coverage and take some of that burden of paying for medical expenses while the kids are in college off the parents. Okay, I'm gonna take a quick break before the interview. While Britney's music plays, feel free to like our Facebook page, The Populist Papers Podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram by putting in the handle C-L-N-K-R-M-R. It's my name, Colin Kramer, without vowels. With me now on the line is Cassie Clausen of The Open School. It's Orange County's first and only democratic free school. Uh, Cassie, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely, Colin. Thanks for having me. Sure. So tell us about The Open School. Uh, We are a school that's modeled after uh, Sudbury Valley School. Uh, We've been open for four years. Our philosophy uh, and our model is called a democratic free school. So what that means is the kids 
are free to do what they want to do with their time. They um, can spend their time how they'd like. They direct their own day. And then we run the school democratically, um, one person, one vote. So because I'm older or the founder doesn't give me any more voting power than a seven-year-old. We all have the same amount of voting power. And so our democracy decides on everything that in a normal school would be decided on by an administration. Um, so that's rules, hiring, field trips, um, when our vacations are, like all of those things are actually decided on by the community. Wow. Such mm -hmm. an interesting approach. And how did you discover the Sudbury model? So personally, I have a background in, um, in education and I have a master's of education. I've taught in a private prep school. And while I was going through my master's and teaching, I was getting more and more frustrated with the, this model of learning. And, and, and really in our traditional education system, we focus way more on the teacher and on the curriculum than we do on the learner hmm. and, the, and what they're learning. So I, I just became more irritated with it. I felt like I was wasting a lot of time. I was spending a lot of time trying to be really creative and come up with games and um, and then my students would come back the next year and not remember, you know, 90% of what we had spent a year on. And, and so, yeah, I felt like I was wasting my time and their time. Um, I read about a school called Summerhill, um, which is the first democratic free school in the world. Um, it's been around for about 100 years, over 100 years wow. in England. Yeah, so the pro it's been proven. You know, there's, the model has been around. And so they've... Some really wonderful articles uh, from A.S. Neal, who's the founder of Summerhill. It just sparked my curiosity, and then I started down the rabbit hole. It's been like 13 years now, 13 or 14 years, that I started reading about it and really started to shift my fundamental belief about education and children. And um, in the process there, I discovered Sudbury Valley, um, started reading about them. What they did is they took this democratic free model where there's still classes, but the kids can choose to go to them or not. Uh. And then, and th that's what Summerhill is. And then they really expanded on it with this philosophy of, but there's so much to learn besides English, math, science, and social sciences. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's this whole world of knowledge and who's to say what a particular child will need to know right. what we know that they need is self-direction what we know that they need is to become independent and responsible for themselves those things are things that human beings need to develop we don't know if they're going to need to you know have be well versed in shakespeare or <laughs> you know like those are things that we we can't tell the future so um so really opening that up and not having all of the the classes except for any class that we offer has been specifically requested and even designed by a student. And it's not common that students request classes. They usually enjoy learning in a lot of different ways. Classes are sometimes one of the least efficient ways to learn something. So, so yeah, that's um, for me personally, I learned about it that way for my own career, my own philosophy of education. I, and once I learned about it and I really became convinced then I found I didn't have a spot anymore in traditional education. I had no job that I wanted that I felt I could, you know, wake up and go to every day. Had to carve your own so, niche, basically. Exactly. So we, you know, my family moved here because of my husband's job. And I really, um, then we started having our own children. And I 
I'm a doer, so I just decided we need to start a school. So that's what happened. Excellent. And do sometimes people get confused by the name that free is in the name? Do they yes. think that means that <laughs> tuition is going to be free? Both the words free and democratic are um, difficult for people at first blush. Yeah. So oh, it's a small yeah. D democratic, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. It's a small D democratic. It's not the democratic party. I sometimes, especially being in Orange County, right. sometimes I have to explain it's not, you know, we're not promoting liberal <laughs> political ideals. Yeah. But it, free school, people think, Oh, it's free, right? <laughs> tuition free. Um, but unfortunately, we cannot be tuition free because we have to get funding somewhere and and we don't align at all with the state standards or with the model of education. So if we were to try to, cha- to, to become a charter or something like that, we would have to change so much about our philosophy and our way of doing things that we would no longer be a Sudbury school. So um, so we do have to charge tuition, but we work really, really hard to make it accessible and affordable and also do fundraising and things like that. Cool. Yeah, it's it's been interesting kind of seeing other schools take on that idea that it's not just about the bottom line, but you have to kind of mm-hmm. um, focus on what your, I mean, what your clientele is going to be, too, and make sure that right. those values match. Right. Yeah. And one, so one of our, you know, one of our values is accessibility. Um, so we have a sliding scale tuition so that families can pay what makes sense for them. They do an application and um, it's a it's a negotiation and communication between the family and the school. The other thing is because we're a democratic school, kids are actually part of running a business. You know, so they're seeing a real business, the inner workings. Um, they we have committees that do all of the business aspects. So there's a budget committee and a PR committee and HR and um, some of these committees that a lot of times would be handled by an administrative staff. But we do them um, transparently. You know, the, even the, that if you can't have a democracy, if it's not transparent. So, right. you know, we have our financials are available. We post them every month. Um, the students have the ability and have at different times serve on some of those committees and you know a lot of times no a 12 year old is not going to find budget that interesting (laughs) but when they realize that money and what what money we have in the bank means we can buy a computer or not or we can go on a field trip or not then they start to see why it's important to be on top of the budget and so we kids authentically and organically become interested in these business ideas because they can actually be part of running a real business. They actually have access to real money. It's not a word problem on a piece of paper. It's not theoretical. It's a real thing. Um, they actually know how much the staff make, you know, and they understand that it's not a lot. <laughs> you know, that they, Talk about uh, transparency, that, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And now are there any committees that they have to join or are they all just basically available if they want to? Right. All of the, pretty much all of the democracy except for one part of it is optional. Um, Similarly to living in our country, if you don't want to engage in the democracy, you don't have to. Mm -hmm. Um, However, a lot of people, you know, worked really hard to give us access to that democracy. And if you don't engage with it, then you really don't, you know, you can't complain. I mean, people do anyway, but... (laughs) In our school, it's the same kind of thing. You do not have to be on any committees. You do not have to go to the school meeting. Um, but that's where your voice is heard. That's where you can actually affect change. 
Now, the one place where it is required is what we call our civics board. Other Sudbury schools called uh, JC or Judicial Committee. Hmm. Um, it is the way that we handle rule breaking. So if, you know, if you get rid of a principal and a vice principal, a vice principal in a, in a traditional school is mainly um, the person the the person who deals with discipline. Right. So in our school, who deals with discipline? Um, well, we all do. Um, we have a rotating committee of students and staff. It's always more students than staff. So we have two kids and one staff member every day on, um, on the civics board. It's always one younger kid and one older kid. So it's representative of the school. And then um, if a rule, if anyone breaks a rule, they can be written up by any member of the community. So we don't have police officers, but we do have people who can keep each other accountable. Um, and, and if something bothers you, you know, let's say I brought, um, I brought my favorite toy to school and, you know, so-and-so like Joe used it without asking my permission. Um, and that really bothered me. And, and I even said, Hey, Joe, I didn't give you permission to do that. Can you give it back? And he didn't. So I can write him up. And then that, that complaint goes to the civics board. The goal of civics board is for people to take responsibility for their actions. It's not about moralizing and lecturing. We're not trying to coerce and manipulate. It's saying, did you do this thing? And that's against a rule that we have. So did you use um, Cassie's toy without her permission? And, you know, when kids first start, they are really good at trying to get, you know, trying to blame someone else, trying not to take responsibility. Right. And they learn at our school that actually taking responsibility is okay. You're not, um, we want you to just take ownership. No one's, you're not going to get lectured. You're not in trouble. You're just saying, yes, I chose to do that thing. And they quickly become more responsible for their actions. They say, yeah, they take ownership of what they did. So they say, yeah, I did it. And then the civics board decides, was a rule broken here? And if so, what should the consequence be? We call them sentences. It's kind of like our judicial system in, in a small way um, without a bunch of people in jail. But it's, you know, <laughs> but people taking ownership um, and then serving on civics board is is not optional. You have to. It's like jury duty. Yeah. Um, yeah. And going, call, going to civics board when you're called is required. So that's the only, that's the place in which the democracy has a required aspect. And that and, makes and a, sense. Oh, keep Yeah. On. I was just going to say, I mean, it's basically the responsibility side of our school. A lot of people hear free school or freedom and really think about kids just being entitled and being able to do whatever they want. And and that would be chaos and no one would want to be at that school because sure. it would be horrible. So I mean, yeah, so there's kids. We, it's going to happen. You know, it's people. So, I mean, right. yeah, kids, humans, you know, humans are going to take license and it's, easy. it's like, oh, I get to do whatever I want. Great. And I get to take whatever I want and I get to, you know, make a mess whenever I want. And, you know, no, you don't. You, you actually have to clean up after yourself. You can't take people's stuff. There's a responsibility side to freedom. We have a really thick rule book, actually. And you know, a, a lot of people would expect that if you have um, a democratic school where the kids outnumber the staff, you know, six to one, they can easily throw out the entire law book if they want to. But they don't because they understand the why they need those rules. We need to have this structure to maintain everyone's personal rights. And that might mean that I have to, um, I have to, rein in my own 
actions and my own freedoms in order to preserve the rights of others because that's they're doing the same for me. Sure. And that's how, you know, you can live in a community of people who are independent and also communal. And, and we're more interrelated, you know, and interdependent rather than independent or codependent. We're, we're interdependent on, well, I'm trusting you that you're also keeping my freedoms and my rights in mind as I'm keeping your freedoms and rights in mind. And we're all keeping the whole school in mind. We're making sure to protect the entire school together. Right. And, and that was one of the best classroom management tips I ever learned was rather than just... <laughs> Tell the kids what the rules are. Hey, number one, mm -hmm. this. Number two, that. Uh, just ask them. Yeah. Hey, what do you think the rules should be? And they always, you're right. They, they care. Want, exactly. And then later on, if you do have to remind them of the rules, it's more like, hey, these were your ideas. Um, but I wanted to ask while we're, we're talking about being a disciplinarian, what's, uh, what's your homework policy? <laughs> so since we are a free school, um, we don't assign any work at all. The students have their own time. They're deciding to do what they want to do. So um, there's no top-down curriculum. There's no, well, you get freedom, but there's a list of things we still expect. It's just you are fully autonomous. So we don't have homework, and it's not even something that, makes sense <laughs> like you know in, a, in in the in in the way our school works um it it would it, it doesn't it doesn't align at all like it's like a word from a different planet you yeah know? right it makes sense yeah I, I, I mean since i because i didn't even know that that sudbury was actually english but even you know that mm -hmm. very traditional english schoolhouse model um it was all about classwork Right. You know, it's the, the teacher kind of had to be there, you know, you, you don't just send them away. And then that was another thing I wanted to ask about was there's a major um, kind of part of the equation that's completely mm -hmm. removed. And that's having parents be what did you call it? It's enforcers in their own home. Right. So, yeah, in a in a traditional school, parents have now become the um, right. They're enforcing the school's policy and the school's agenda in their own home. So now parents are the extension of the school and they don't really even have their own family time anymore. I mean, so many parents who come to us after having been in a traditional school, that's their chief. That's one of their chief complaints is we didn't have any time. Like basically my child came home from school. We had to do homework for two hours and it was dinner, then, you know, or soccer practice, whatever. And all of our time was spent, basically in this conflict because I was trying to make my child do something that the teacher wanted, not even something I wanted, you know? Um, so we, the open school, when parents come and we talk to them about it during admissions process, I tell them that what is important for them when they're with their kids is to be with their kids. You know, their family is the first and most important part of what their kid will get out of life. You know, they're statistically speaking, a child is going to, model after their parents more so than any other staff member, any other kid at our school. And so taking, you know, the family time and the time at home to be a family for, for your child to interact with you as a person, find out what is important to you. You find out what's important to them and the school stays out of it. It's your house, you know, it's your family. Right. So you're kind of protecting you know, them from becoming the bad guy in a way. Oh, right. Absolutely. And we, we try and offer a lot of support to our parents because we are doing something so different. Mm 
-hmm. because all of our parents usually parent differently as well. Um, And we want to give them tools and support education for them to feel safe and secure in the decision they're making. But sometimes we have parents who, who say, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do anymore because my role was all around getting my kid to do something she didn't want to do. You know, mm-hmm. if I, this, and the other thing that we have is we have flexible drop off. So there's, you know, parents who drop off at 11 a.m. And, you know, that's something that is unheard of in a traditional school. And there's so much stress around getting out the door in the morning and making sure you have all of your, stuff that you're supposed to have in your backpack and that you're wearing, you're, you're not wearing things and that not, violate not the dress code. Not a morning person, right? Oh, no. Especially <laughs> no. at, I mean, at most certain of us, ages. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, so really part of what we offer to families is to take that stress of like the additional work that a school often gives to families. Like, well, now you have to show up to this event and you have to make sure your child does this homework and, you know, read X number of books every night or whatever. And we're saying like you as a parent actually know the best thing for your child and you know, and the best thing for them is to know you as a person and to like have a relationship with their parents, you know? Yeah. Let so them to have us, that space. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, um, it's sort of a side benefit. Um, but it also, it's a, it's integral to the fact that we believe in human rights and dignity and freedom for, for people, for individuals, including those parents. Right. Um, you mentioned that there's that uh, late drop-off option. Are some mm-hmm. students able to stay later in the day as well? Yeah. Okay. Right. Our school is open from 8.30 to 4.30. A student is required to be here for five hours a day. Um, so as long as they figure that out. Um, we do have a requirement here by 11 because that's when our civic board starts. So we do need everyone to be here by 11. Um, but we, you know, if you need to drop off at eight thirty and pick up at one um, thirty or two, or you know, you can do that. Okay. Um, Did you also want to talk a little bit, maybe, about some of the benefits of having mixed ages together? Yeah. Um, right now, our school is um, well. We're K through twelve school and age mixed, um, meaning there's no segregation between ages for any reason, unless the kids themselves, you know, basically they end up playing with their buddies who happen to be around their same ages. But, um, you know, the space is set up so there's different activities and different different rooms are kind of set up for different kinds of things. And then um, you can go in there regardless of your age. So what we see the benefit, I mean, there's, there's a number of benefits. Um, one right off the bat is that students, a lot of times kids learn better from someone who's right around their age or a little bit older than they do from an adult because I'm 30 years separated from them, whereas their friend might be four or five years separated from them. That, that friend just... Right. They kind of speak yeah. the same language in a way. Yeah, they do. They just went through, you know, they just figured that out themselves. You know, I've seen kids teach each other how to tie, um, tie their shoes or, you know, different math things or, you know, how to, I mean, a lot of video games and we can talk about screens too, but, you know, in collaborative um, collaboration and video games and learning how to do something that this other person just learned. Um, and so, so that's like a huge benefit is, is just academic learning and, and then also social emotional learning, same idea that kid, you know, just figured out how to negotiate with someone or they just, you know, like there's, they're learning from kids who are a little bit older than them and watching them 
And um, so then our younger kids end up being really mature um, and they, they all learn personal responsibility. They learn how to advocate for themselves in a way that's, you know, non-confrontational. It's interesting to see some of our five and six year olds um, because they seem really advanced um, in some of those ways. And that's because of the age mixing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that we see is because we're age mixed and there's, there's not competition, right? So in a traditional classroom, everyone's 10 and they're all competing. They're all trying to do the same thing better than the other person. One-upsmanship. Right. So, but because of that, they, um, there's not a problem with systemic bullying. Uh, not that we don't have times where kids are using their powers, you know, to get what they want, but that there's not a systemic issue where one kid is continually bullied by a group of other bigger kids or things like that. There's the age mixing creates a community. It creates people who are looking out for each other. There's no reason for them to put someone down continually. It takes off that pressure um, of trying to have, you know, one up the other person. So now they can support each other. You know, an older kid can see that a younger kid is sad and can ask about them. Their compassion um, is totally grown in an age mixed community um kids care learning to care for each other physically emotionally socially uh, you know mentally they're taking care of one another and they're learning compassion through that so there's i mean i i think that age mixing is our secret ingredient it's something that's not necessarily on the front page about a model like ours but it's if it it's just an incredible part of it. I would never want to segregate the ages because they learn so much from each other. Whereas I remember, you know, in traditional school, there could be kids who even were just, you know, three or four months difference in their birthday, but because one person's in 10th grade and the other person's in ninth grade, it's, you know, like, well, I'm better than you uh, because, and they kind of treat each other like, Oh, you're, you don't know anything. You're a freshman. And, it's just like, that's just not even part of the conversation here. Like, your age doesn't matter. You're a person. You have thoughts. You have feelings. You have ideas. Those things are valid. Right. Just grades, I guess, in and of itself or having a mm-hmm. grade system is kind of a hierarchy. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. So, right. We don't have, we're ungraded. None of our kids have grades. And in fact, it's really interesting when, you know, when adults ask what grade <laughs> the kids are in, they usually have, they have to think about it for a while. Or they just say, like, well, my school doesn't have grades. I'm nine. <laughs> so, uh, Could you talk to us a little bit about your philosophy of learning through play? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, children, humans, really, are created. We're made in a way that we learn about the world by exploring it and playing in it. Everybody who's had a child under five sees this, that that is how kids are exploring the world. They're playing with um you know, I remember my, my oldest when he was two or three and getting really fascinated with trains. You know, the trains have mm-hmm. the little magnets, right? So he's like putting the magnets together and pulling them apart and learning, you know, turning them around and exploring that thing because he wants to play with it. He's curious about it. And so he's learning about it that way. That doesn't change the moment you turn five. There's nothing that changes in our, in our biology as you get older to say that you stopped learning that way and now you need someone to tell you. It is continuous as long as you don't 
send the message that they can't learn without it, they will continue to do that. And that play, which looks very, very much like play to us, you know, as adults, play, we're frightened of play. We think that play is wasting our time because especially in our Western society, it's all about being productive and being able to show that you've done something today. And that means, you know, how many emails have you answered? And, you know, how many projects have you completed? And, and some of those things that make us kind of spin our wheels. Um, and we think, well, kids, there needs to be some sort of product. That's where homework mm. comes in. That's where grades come in. We need to see, we need to see a product something in order to, to know that something's happening. Absolutely. Otherwise, there's nothing really happening. We can't prove it, you know. So, but more and more, I mean, and child development experts know this and have known it, is that play and exploration, some of those things you can't measure with a test or with a product. It's just, it's how children are interacting and learning about their world. And as they get older, that play, I mean, we still have 14-year-olds who play tag. You know, they don't, it's not that, like, kids love to play. They love to run around. Um, It's you know, not until they're nearing adulthood that they might be like, eh, I'd rather do something else. But even our staff, our staff run around. I mean, they have a great time, you know, and they're like in their 20s and 30s and <laughs> running around playing. So it's something that's intrinsic biologically to humanity. And what ends up happening is that they, in, they are engaging in their environment. They're engaging in their own development. The play really starts to turn into a passion. And as kids become more adept at things and more um, learn more about something that they're really interested in to them. It still feels like play because they're so curious. They're so they're um, they're exploring something. They're getting deeper into it. And then it becomes something that maybe even be, you know, becomes a study as, as an adult or becomes a, you know, a career path, but it doesn't have to, it's okay if it doesn't lead to a career path. It's the point is that you, when you are playing, you have control over your environment. You have, you're doing something that uh, there's risk, there's chance. It's like, it's, it's so many, and there's books written on this, right? So, you know, to, sure. to boil it down into one answer, it's difficult, but that there's so much involved in play and that evolutionary biologists have, you know, looked at like, this is how you look at every other species. That's how they learn. That's how you learn to be an adult is you play at it, you know, and mm-hmm. you're, you're experimenting with the world and, and interacting with the world on your level. And that, that remains, that just, that remains with kids as they get older, they remain in that engaging and experimenting and playing with the world. Um, and, and because it hasn't been, they haven't been told that play is worthless. You know, they haven't been told this is a waste of your time. They're, um, and they're actually really, end up being very productive, you know, in a traditional sense. I I would think happier in a way too, since, and especially Mm -hmm. the way that games are constantly changed. I remember we had a game called Shark at the pool and it was never the same way twice. You know, sometimes there was a hose involved. uh, Yeah. And and I remember even Bernie Sanders talked about how his era, you know, those kids didn't really have adults monitoring them. They would just play Mm -hmm. in the streets. And because there Mm -hmm. wasn't really a ref or a coach, they had to Mm -hmm. come up with all the rules, again, organically, and think for themselves as a group. And kind of, that probably makes for more, you know, civically-minded people. Absolutely. And, and, um, problem solvers. I mean, that's, I just read an article, 
I don't know, last week that was something like, you know, organized sports is not play. <laughs> that, but it is, it's that, you know, like adults have taken over play in some places. We're like, well, we need to tell you the rules and we need to organize tournaments and, you know, you're going to do it this way. Whereas that's exercise, you know, what's play is that play is experimenting, changing things. You know, Calvin Ball, <laughs> it's like my favorite, yeah, I'm familiar with Calvin and Hobbes, mm. but Calvin Ball, that's what, you know, it's this game that is never the same. Like the only rule is there are no rules. <laughs> and, and we have, um, it's interesting to watch that because kids here have so much space and time to play that that's the, what you're talking about with the evolution of a game of the rules and things changing all the time. We see that here constantly that there's a game that everyone knows, you know, there's, there's a couple of games that are like, Oh, do you want to play animal tag or a zombie tag? Whatever. They have these different things that they've completely created. And it started with something that's known and then just started morphing. And it's a, it's like coming from our students and from our school that is so it, it it, yeah, it, it develops people who are problem solvers, who are collaborative, who are um, creative. And that's what our world needs. I, sorry to keep going, but no, no, the, other thing, the other thing that reminded me of is um, I read about a study. I think it was from JPL or it was with the JPL employees. And it was looking at why, the, you know, some of the newer engineers, the younger engineers were having, they had a harder time with creative problem solving and coming up with new solutions. And, you know, this study, one of the um, conclusions of it was that the older generation of engineers had so much free play when they were children, that they had so much time to, you know, play in the street or in the woods or whatever without adult supervision, without top down, you know, rules that they had to problem solve. They had to be creative. And that's something that some of the younger generations were missing because so much of their time was directed and scheduled for them that they didn't have that time. Or it's, you know, it's kind of causing a crisis even in the workforce of we have a lot of great followers. We have a lot of people who can do what they're told and we don't need that. You know, we need a lot of people who are free thinkers and who can come, you know, make their own jobs even and make their own um, businesses and solve problems that we didn't know we would have 10 years ago, who would have, if you think about 10 years ago, a smartphone didn't exist, you know, like this is new, like things have changed so much just in 10 years. We, there's no way that we can predict what the problems are going to be that need to be solved, you know, in 10 years from now. So what we need are people who can solve anything you know who are just creative sure. problem solvers so. and able to let their mind wander and wonder yeah and yeah uh, that's you know you and be able to fail right <laughs> that's another thing you know being able to be wrong like uh, it's yeah. okay neil deGrasse tyson talks about that all yeah. the time how we mm. we need to encourage failure as part of science again the process yeah. Um, you reminded me, though, this notion of having more free time. My friend Travis pointed out he's actually a captain on a boat up in Alaska now. And I went up there to visit him one time and we were on his boat, just he and I. And he's like, you know, kids don't really wonder or people. Actually, again, you and I keep catching ourselves. It's like it's not really a kid yeah. thing. It's a people thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. People don't really wonder anymore. We were kind of mm-hmm. in a way, um, 
you know, those of us that were around 10 years ago before the smartphone, like you said, we were kind of the last ones to really wonder because now you have Google. <laughs> you can find out. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so I just wanted to know if for students that do want to get a diploma, uh, did mm -hmm. you want to talk about some of the requirements for that? Path? Sure. We are a young school. We, we're in our fourth year. Like I said, we haven't graduated anyone, but we have created our diploma path. We've looked at Sudbury Valley and some of the other Sudbury schools um, as well. There, there's a couple of schools that we've drawn on for this. And now, first of all, you're not required to go on the diploma path to, you know, you can turn 18 and just say, okay, I'm done with school and move on. Um, but if you wanted a diploma, it would take, it's, it's set up to take about two years to go through the process. But basically what, what students would do is they would, um, they would choose a staff to be like their staff advocate or their advisor. The advisor and the student would work together to create a personalized diploma process. And in that process, they're going to end up with something that's more like a portfolio. Um, you know, they're not getting graded on anything, but they're creating their own experience or like resume. Well, that's more practical anyway. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so you're going to leave with saying, well, I did X, Y, Z, not here's my 4.0 grade point average, but here's what I actually accomplished. Here are the things that I did. Okay. Um, so the different uh, areas of the, um, what they do is there, first of all, there's something called the passages and we take those from like a, a rite of passage, you know, coming of age. So we have self-direction passage. So they might do something that's like an internship or um, an entrepreneurship, starting their own business, getting an apprenticeship out in the community, something that's self-directed. We have a courage passage. So that might be like a physical challenge that you set for yourself or a personal challenge. Maybe if um, your challenge, maybe you're into art and so you want to have your own art show with 30 pieces and that's your so the students are setting their own challenges and then meeting them uh, maybe it's travel maybe you're going you're 17 and you're you want to go on a week-long trip up the california coast and you do it all by yourself you know something like that that's like a i mean that's really like if you look at indigenous cult right, cultures like that's a what they a walkabout right yeah like you're, you're going out to find your spirit guide but like that is such a process of a, becoming an adult, traveling out in the world, making your way. Um, so that might be part of it. Um, and then a responsibility passage. So maybe they're, they're showing like their skills, being able to be responsible for themselves as an adult. What is that going to take? Maybe they look at their, okay, well, I know a little bit something about cooking, but I've never done anything with tax preparation or making a budget for myself or car maintenance, something like that. And then they, they, work on those skills to kind of be a ready for um, being an adult. And then we also are looking for kids who are looking for a diploma from us to be a contributor to the democracy. So mm -hmm. they would need to serve on a committee um, or, you know, have maybe be a chair, a school meeting chair, something where they're contributing to the democracy beyond just like the bare minimum. And then at the culmination of that, they make a presentation. So that can look, in, it can look, in a lot of different ways. It can, it can be like a thesis that they're defending or that they write. It could be a performance. It could be um, an art show. It could be, you know, a video that they make and something like that. But, but whatever it is for them. And they're doing that to a group of people that are strangers. So we would bring in people from outside our community. Generally, it would be people from other Sudbury schools. Uh. 
And those um, are the, they would ask questions of the student, like, why do you think you're ready to be an adult? What are what have you learned from the open school? What are you taking with you? You know, they're basically defending the, the thesis of I'm an adult now and here's why. And so it, this panel from outside of our school would actually vote on whether or not to grant a diploma. So that's kind of, that's the whole, but the process, they're going to also have this portfolio and here's the things that I've been working on and, you know, ready for that. So it's a, it's a big undertaking. I mean, it's not something we take lightly uh, because really to get a diploma from here, you're saying I am self-directed. I am independent. I am responsible. You know, I'm an adult. I'm ready to move on. That's quite the commitment. Yeah, it is. So, and you mentioned committees again. So I'm curious, you know, having mm-hmm. seen so much of this firsthand, and I remember hearing it was kind of making the rounds around the radio and internet for a while, but some 13-year-old wrote a really compelling case for mm-hmm. lowering the legal voting age because he's like, hey, mm-hmm. we have to breathe, you know, mm-hmm. polluted air or contaminated right. water when that happens. Why don't we get a say in this? So, I mean, yeah, it honestly wasn't something I had considered much at all was youth suffrage. I think it's something to consider, but 18 is a very arbitrary age um, and it does affect the students. I think that I remember there being a case where there were students uh, like high school students who wanted to vote for their own school board. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is, you know, this is a school board that's going to affect your school. Like, don't you want to have a say of who's on it? Doesn't that make sense? And there's this fear that children are going to throw that away or they're, you know, they're not going to think very deeply about it. Uh, I think there are a few cities in the U.S. where you can vote at 16. Um, but I, you know, only a, only a handful um, for very specific elections or something like that. But I would total. I would be absolutely in favor of, of youth suffrage. I've seen how much kids take it seriously and care about it. Okay. And how would you, so what is youth suffrage for someone that's just never heard that term? Similar to, you know, women's suffrage is mm-hmm. saying that if you are like, let's lower the voting age, you know, and say that human beings have the ability to vote because by virtue of being humans and being citizens of this country, they should have a say in what happens. Um, and I don't know what age I would say, you know, I, I haven't looked too much into it or if does there need to be an age? I don't know. Should it just be at the age at which you care when you start to be aware of it and care? But yeah, basically, that's just it just means voting rights for I love it. Mm-hmm. So and just one more thing, as far as your more personal political philosophy goes, is there mm-hmm. anything you think that like people need to know in our society or right. should, should pretty much like everything really be sort of self-determined? Right. Right. Um, you know, I think there are things that people need to know, but I don't think that they should be forced to know them, if that makes sense. I think life and engaging in the world are going to force people to learn certain things that, that everyone has, you know, I mean, some of those, like, first of all, academic basics, like reading and writing and, you know, basic math and understanding of biology, reproduction, things like that are part of our life. It helps. And so, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, well, what's going to, you know, what happens then is they come against the need to know it first and then they learn it because they see the need to know it. And so 
there are things that I think everyone needs to know, but again, it shouldn't be learned because they're forced by an adult or a curriculum to learn it. It's they're going to learn it because they're humans, you know? Um, I, the thing is I trust kids. I trust the human um, natural curiosity. I trust that people want to challenge themselves. They don't, um, they, they want to grow. They want to um, explore and, that means that they're going to learn all the basics. They're going to learn about the world around them. And the basic, basic thing that everyone needs is self-direction, you know, being mm. able to say, I want to, I, I'm here, I'm here at point A and I want to get to point B. How do I do that? And figuring it out, figuring out what's my first step, what's, what's, What's point A1? What's point A2? What's point, you know, how do I get there? It can be really overwhelming if you don't have those skills. And that's, that's what we're growing here is kids learning how to push themselves, how to get from where they are to where they want to be. I know there's also a model that like teaches kids how to build stuff like, you know, wood shop, Mm -hmm. and then they start learning math. So they see like, right. oh, hey, I want to make project something. Project-based, yeah, right. like or, a project-based learning. Exactly, mm-hmm. or using music to help understand fractions and things like mm-hmm. that. Because even mm-hmm. I, I was like overreaching, kind of like, oh, man, should we force people to learn English at least? And it's like, mm-hmm. no, this country's always been diverse. I mean, even England had mm-hmm. some kings that didn't speak English. You right. know, you, there's a way, you know, you can live your own life. Um, Absolutely. Do, does the school have like a Twitter account or anything if they want to keep up with you? Um, the best place to learn about us is our website, openschoolOC.com. Uh, we are currently in Orange. We are opening another campus in Marietta, oh. um, which is in Riverside County. Uh, so if people in that area are interested, there's information about that. Our most active social media is Facebook. So you can follow us on Facebook, which I believe is facebook.com slash the open school. Mm-hmm. Other than that, we have Twitter, we have Instagram. They're not as active as Facebook. And then I'm happy to be available to, to um, anyone who has questions. Um, you can email me through the website, um, contact me directly. I, I'm trying to make myself pretty available to the public. It's all about transparency. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks again. I mean, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, our goal isn't, you know, we absolutely want to have a great school for our kids. That's our number one thing. But also another big part of our goal is to spread the news, you know, spread the message that um, children can be treated with respect and dignity and they won't throw it away, you know, that they're um, that they're worth it. So. Well, that's what this podcast is for, just getting the word out there, right? Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, thanks again. This was a lot of fun, and I'm really impressed with what you're doing. So keep up the great work. Okay. Thank you so much, Colin.